Beloved, our text this morning comes from the Hebrew Scriptures, the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses is giving his farewell speech, if you will, to a group of folks who have just spent decades in the wilderness. Hear now these words from Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, the fourth through ninth verses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand and fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy, never ceasing. Lord, you call for songs of loudest praise. So teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Lord, here's your mount. I'm fixed upon it. Mount to thy redeeming love. And so God of grace and God of glory, speak now a word to your people a word that will comfort and correct, a word that will challenge us and send us out to do your will and to follow you. It's in Christ's name that we do pray. Amen. Beloved, in sitting with this text this week, I've returned to the fact that one of the most common and enduring ways we describe what it means to practice faith is to liken it to being on a journey. Part of why we do that is because we recognize that faith is not just a destination. It's not something that you can get really, really good at and eventually master. Faith is not just another thing that you're able to check off the daily to-do list. No, faith we understand is a practice. It is lived out and embodied and experienced with every breath that we take. A few weeks ago in the faith and function class, it was Missy Minor was here and, and she put it like this, faith is not about mental assent. Faith is not about believing that a set of statements are logically and factually true. Faith is not about mental assent. It's not a mental exercise. It's not about being right or simply believing the right things. No wonder if there's a few of us who got a bit uncomfortable when you heard that. Maybe felt a little unsettledness creeping up in your stomach because perhaps you were raised in a tradition that linked faith and rightness, that, that linked faith and righteousness at the expense of all those who were just living wrong and doing wrong. Maybe you were raised in a tradition where faith was all about doing the right things and saying the right things and believing the right things or at least claiming to believe 
the right things. But when we return to an understanding of faith that is shaped by the image of a journey, we are admitting to ourselves that faith has little to do with rightness. Instead, we perhaps remind ourselves that faith is the sustaining, motivating, even subtle reality of our lives that continually confesses that God is sovereign and at work in our stories, even when our stories bring us to the brink of brokenness. Faith, when we liberate it from rightness, is less about doctrine and much more about the disciplines required to make our way through each day and not be consumed by the negative thoughts that cloud out our sound judgment. Faith helps us to hear past the partisan sound chambers that masquerade as news to discern the voice of God still calling through. Faith is the thing that buoys us when the disappointments pop up on the pieces of our unrealized expectations. Faith is that which holds us together. And that is perhaps why journey is the perfect metaphor, because when we think about faith through the lens of journeying, we are reminding ourselves that our lives will always vacillate between the ups and the downs will always move between that which we deem good and that which we only are able to understand as bad and even the parts of our stories that we do not think belong. All those things that we really wish would not have happened. Perhaps that's why the narrative that gives context to the content of this morning's text before us is, is so immovable and, and so, so irreplaceable, so central to our story as Christians, that this story of the Israelites journeying through the wilderness is not just good storytelling, even though it is, but it also resonates in our lives on a deeper level because each of us are on our own journeys, journeys that often intersect with seasons of wandering through the wilderness unsure of what comes next. And if you've been to Sunday school before or made your way to worship and wonder like our younger church just did, you know that story well. For 40 years, the Israelites have been in the wilderness having been liberated from oppression in Egypt, having been emancipated from slavery for 40 years, the Israelites have traversed an unwieldy and wild and dangerous and uncertain and depressing wilderness. They left a situation in Egypt that had stolen loved ones from them unjustly and before their time. They left a place where they had been subjugated and dehumanized. They left a place where hope unborn had died, where there was no possibility. They left the kinds of places where, if we're honest, we may find ourselves in every now and again. Places where hope is conspicuously absent. Places where possibility really is a pipe dream. Hard places. Hard places that we eventually find a way to escape with glimpses of hope on the horizon only to find out that we left a hard place for a wild place. 
a hard place for a wilderness. This is the story of the Israelites journeying through the wilderness, and that's why it resonates with us over and over and over again, because our lives, they are filled with wilderness experiences. Transitions, they can, they can feel like a wilderness experience. The kinds of transitions where we go from partnered to single. Transitions where we go from the one with all of the power to the one no one pays attention to anymore. Transitions in our lives where we go from plenty to want, from healthy to bedridden, from the one at the center of attention to the one whose name is never called or never has a soft touch to move through their day. Transitions that unsettle us because change is never something that anyone really welcomes no matter how flexible and understanding you consider yourself to be. We resist the things that we cannot control, which may just be the understatement of the century. We resist the things that we cannot control. And the frustrating thing about change is that it has a funny way of showing up and revealing precisely how much is outside of our control in the first place. Change shows up to reveal to us that no matter how many times we mistake ourselves for the creator, we are the created. And there are some things in our story that God alone can handle. That's what makes the wilderness sometimes so frustrating because we come face to face with our limitations. And I wonder how many of us would be able to admit that we think we're quite limitless if we trust our own thinking. In the wilderness, we're made to sit in the tension of the transitions. We must walk the unwelcome legs of the journey that we really wish God would have provided an alternate route for. And for 40 years, that is the hard and heavy work that the Israelites has done. For 40 years, the Israelites' journey has unfolded within the context of a wilderness experience. And for 40 years, sometimes grumbling, sometimes under their breath, the Israelites have been wondering, why would God bring us from a hard place to a wild place? And who cares about the promise that there's something better on the other side of this wilderness. Have you, ever, have you ever had that kind of conversation with God before? Maybe I'm the only one who has ever told God to do better. Said, God, you really disappointed me and I expected more of you. Ever said, God, where I was before was bad enough. Where I'm at now is pretty terrible. And even though you promised me that you'd never leave me nor forsake me, even though you promised that you would hold me in the hollow of your hand, even though you said that one day in your course is better than a thousand elsewhere, even though you said that your love would be enough, I don't believe your promises anymore. They're feeling a bit empty. Beloved, if you're there, I believe the Israelites were there as well here in this morning's text. And understanding that, understanding where the Israelites are, Moses 
rises to stand before them. Moses rises to stand before these people that he had pastored and walked alongside and led and heard their stories and dried their tears and laid their loved ones to rest and married them. He stands up before them with an eye toward a promised land that he will never enter and does what he had done for 40 years, day in and day out, week in and week out. He begins speaking about God. And because I know the Israelites were some good God-fearing folks who always attended the assembly, I know that nobody groaned when Moses got to talking. I know that everyone listened with rapt attention to hear what Moses would say to them after 40 years of just trying to survive. I know everyone was there listening with bated breath to hear what Moses would say to them after they'd gone through that journey. And so he faithfully stands in front of these wilderness-worn folks and proclaims words that I wonder if they were truly able to understand. Words I wonder if they were able to receive through the layers of pain and disappointment that had built up over the years. Words that may not have resonated because of how deep the resentment had settled over their memories. Words that may have fallen on deaf ears because of how fractured their faith had become because God had not lived up to their expectations. After all, instead of bringing them from a hard place to liberation and the promise, God brought them from a hard place to a wild place that had worn them out for 40 years that had caused them to bury parents and children and partners, that had caused them to lose all the things that had given them a sense of meaning and an identity. But Moses speaks anyway and says to them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Or as Robert Alter, that Hebrew scholar, translates it, Hear, Israel. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. But don't just hear these words. Work them into your life. Keep these words in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're out and about. Bind them to your hand and on your forehead. Whatever you do, do not let these words fall on deaf ears. And yet sometimes that is exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens when we find ourselves encountering hard truths about God. They fall on deaf ears. Those hard truths that do not conform to what we believe about God and how we believe God should act and what we've convinced ourselves is true about God. And we resist those hard truths that following God means that there will indeed be hard times and disciplines. We resist the truth that following God will unsettle how we see things, including the things we were only able to experience as pain, 
The seasons that we look back and only remember the suffering, the parts of our story that we've never told anyone because they are too burdened down by shame and regret and anger. But following God means accepting the hard truth that God was even in the midst of those things. That God really was in the midst of those places where you wish God would have rescued you from. Those are the kinds of hard truths about God that we resist. Because if God was in the suffering and we didn't see or experience God doing anything about it, then at worst, God comes off as a bit sadistic. And at best, God failed to live up to what we expected out of a relationship with a God who claims to be sovereign. At this point, I pray that you're feeling at least a little bit more uncomfortable. Because that's a heck of a hard truth to sit with. But allow me to add another one to the pile. For while God is neither sadistic nor is God's sovereignty in jeopardy, our thinking, our thinking here is what must be challenged. Our resistance to the fact that God is present even in the moments we'd like to write out of the story that God is authoring exposes that we have a hard time accepting the truth that everything belongs. And I'm getting an assist here from Richard Rohr. I know many of you are familiar with him. Maybe you, like I, receive his daily meditations in your inbox each morning. There was one from a few weeks ago that came up in some conversations that I have taken to almost reading and reciting daily. If I could bind it on my forehead without getting some awkward stares, I probably would because it's been so helpful. Rohr. Roar like Moses, trying to get his point across to a people worn out by wilderness experiences. Roar tries to help us get out of the kind of thinking that consistently resists that God is so much God, that God can be in the hard places and not act the way that we had hoped. That God is so much God, that God can be in the hard places and not save us from the pain. That God is so much God, that God can answer prayers in ways that disappoint us and still be God. Roar, roar calls the freedom from that kind of dualistic thinking, contemplative consciousness. The kind of consciousness that, that we resist. Here's how Roar puts it. Every bit of resistance to this contemplative consciousness comes from some previous mental explanation of how things should be or what we wanted or expected them to be. If we start our day off with 10 expectations, we have just set ourselves up for an unhappy day. When we live out of our minds, it just creates expectations and reasons to be disappointed. Don't do that. We've got to choose God here. In this moment, and whatever happens, happens. It's okay. We don't always succeed at this, but when we do, we know that everything belongs. We know that God can use even this, and maybe the experience really was all right. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Beloved, when we live out of our minds, as, as Roar gives us that language for when we live out of our minds, when we are constantly judging experiences as good and bad, acceptable or alien, when we live out of our minds, we may find ourselves about the work of gathering evidence to confirm that nothing can heal our hurts or soothe our sorrows. We will be about the work of gathering evidence to confirm that some things just don't belong and some things we just won't accept. When we live out of our minds, we have a particular proclivity for catastrophizing. When we live out of our minds, we resist that God is sovereign and that in God, everything really does belong. Beloved, this text before us this morning is not ours first. We come to this text a bit later than our Jewish siblings who, who call it the Shema, from the Hebrew word to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear is a very important word because as my mother often reminded me, hearing and listening are two different things. But if you hear, you may eventually be able to move to listening. And if you can listen, you may eventually move to understanding. And just in case to hedge our bets, if you can hear, then perhaps you can focus less on the negative and catastrophizing thinking and more on what God is saying. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Scholar of Hebrew liturgy and in rabbinical literature at Brandeis University when, when talking about the Shema says that part of the reason why these words have endured so long as part of our faith and is so central as part of Judaism is because when you recite the Shema, it ought to summon up an all-consuming feeling of love for God. It's, it's really a reminder of just how much you ought to love God with all of your heart and all of your being and all of your might. Professor Kettleman goes on and says it like this, it's a love that is unreserved, all demanding, at all times, in all places, and in all circumstances. But he kept on going and it got even better to me because he says this love that is summoned by hearing and reciting the words of the Shema, he says it's a love where nothing is excluded. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Everything belongs. And you don't get to hold back the parts of your experience from God, whether because you're angry at God for how it unfolded or whether we're ashamed at what we've done or said or believed. Nothing is excluded from the story. And if we can choose God here and not live out of our minds, then not only can we hear this truth, we can understand it as the reality of our stories and the reality of God's great love for us. For nothing is excluded. Everything belongs. Or as Bishop Yvette Flunder reminds us, God is God enough to change the key of our song 
such that the dissonant notes of our lives become the missing sound in the symphony. Everything belongs. I close with this. Dear friend of mine told me about an interview he attended with Father Gregory Boyle. Not familiar with Father Boyle, he's founder of Homeboy Industries out in California. It's a youth program. It's a transformational social enterprise that's working to give former gang members and young people who are caught up in the criminal justice system a way out of that wilderness, a way out of that social marginalization. Homeboy Industries and Father Boyle are about the work of redemption. And my friend was recounting to me this interview in which Father Boyle explained how he has kept his faith and his hope when redemption work fails. Because sometimes it fails at least the way we had it planned. Those moments and those experiences when members of their program find their way back to gangs or, or folks from their old life test style show up and, and don't want them to be liberated and so their lives are taken. You'd think Father Boyle would be resistant to those situations. You'd think he'd have a hard time accepting them as part of the story. But what the Father Boyle said in that interview was, I don't mind what happens. Now, since I'm preaching, let me go ahead and be honest. I heard that and thought Father Boyle is out of his mind. Because I do mind what happens. And I want others to mind what happens when lives are snuffed out and when liberation is denied. I want others to mind what happens when justice is politicized. And I want others to mind because I do mind when my plans do not pan out and when I've been wronged and the wrong can't be righted. I do mind. So how can you say I don't mind what happens? And then it clicked. Well, really, it took a couple weeks for it to click. <laughs> Father Boyle is out of his mind, and we should be too. Perhaps that's what Moses was trying to get the Israelites to remember. Get out of your mind. Get beyond your need to deem everything as acceptable to your story or alien to your story. Get out of the habit of trying to figure out what's excluded and what doesn't belong because it's imperative that you get out of your mind, beloved. It's imperative that you stop living out of your mind so that you can hear and understand and be conscious of how God is at work in the places and moments that you're just trying to hurry through. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, listen up, understand, remember. Because one day, like the Israelites, you'll move from this wild place to the promised place. And when you get where you're going, when your journey of faith eases up and things meet up with your expectations a bit more suitably, there will still be battles you'll have to fight. And the key to holding it together, whether you're in the wilderness or in the promise, is to remember what Moses implored the Israelites to recall each day and to recite to their children and to describe on their hearts, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. 
And because God is one, because God is sovereign, because God is always near and never abandons our stories, everything belongs to the glory of God.